Our scripture reading today is from Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divini, divi, <laughs> divinities <laughs> because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself, give, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of, ignorant, of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And all of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among them whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Right. Thank you, Elizabeth, for reading that lengthy passage this morning. Um, it was a long one, but I, I, you know, it's funny, like, I have a say uh, as the pastor in how long the scripture readings are on a given Sunday. And I'm of the mind where I, I would prefer to have as much scripture read from this pulpit as possible. And so sometimes the scripture readings are long, um, and, uh, and there's not much desire in me to shorten them, <laughs> because I think it's good for us to, be, uh, to, to interact with the content of Scripture. Uh, 
And so, uh, but this passage itself is such a, such a unit, it's such a contained uh, section of thought. And I've, I was thinking about this passage. So, if you've ever heard the term Mars Hill, um, there's, the, the, there's been a podcast about a church called Mars Hill that's been around lately and everything, but if you've ever heard that term, Mars Hill, it is, uh, it's a reference to this, this, um, this place in Athens where Paul preached this sermon. Uh, and the reason that that name is used, churches call themselves Mars Hill, there's churches all over the country um, that do this. There's a, uh, a, a kind of a publication ministry out there uh, that's been around for a long, long time called Mars Hill Audio. And these things uh, exist, be- and part of the idea for them is how do Christian people talk about Christianity with people who do not share their faith? And it's, it's an important concept, it's an important thing to think about, because all of us, no matter what it is that we're talking about, we have sort of insider language that we might use with things that we're very familiar with. I just had a conversation in the hallway out here about basketball, uh, and Christian Leitner's name came up. And for some of us, we may not have any idea who that is, and for others of us, we might be like, never use that name in this... Um, but all of us, we have like we have sort of language that we use and measures of familiarity with things, and and religion or or a faith system is one of those things where we might have language as Christians that we use with one another. You know, how's your walk? You know, um, what's your testimony? You know, things like that that Christians might use, and other Christians would say, "I know what it is that you're asking," but. What does it mean to talk about what the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ is with people who may be new to exploring what that means um, or people who are just kind of on the outside of, of the world of the church or maybe were raised in a uh, kind of a religious home but it was maybe nominal in the sense that, that faith wasn't necessarily a, a central part of the practice of, of the family. And so... So when I stand in a room like this on a Sunday morning, uh, I never presume that I'm talking to a room full of Christians. Uh, I presume that I'm talking to uh, basically three groups of people. There's probably more, but let me, let, me say, let me give you three buckets to put people in, to put you in if you, if you like to be put in a bucket. Um, group number one. Christians who are Christian on purpose, they're walking with the Lord, have been for a long time, I use that term walking with the Lord, who have been following Jesus Christ in their lives and, and, and practice uh, discipleship habits like being in scripture and, and, and prayer and being a part of the local church where it's a very intentional and central part of their life. Others, bucket two, would be people who you might look at and think, this person must be a Christian because uh, they have their own Bible, they come to church, they're a regular part of this community, but inside they would say, actually not so fast. I'm, I'm very much a person in process, and I've been raised with this, and I, I, church is kind of part of something I've known my whole life, but I don't know what it is that I really, really believe. And then bucket three would be people who would say, I'm, I'm not a Christian. Like when later in the service, I'll invite Christians to come to the communion table. And I'll say in, that, in, in the process of that invitation, if this is not your faith, then I'd ask you to observe rather than to partake. And the reason is because to take these elements is to make a profession of faith in Christ. 
And so we all want to approach this table with the integrity that it calls for, um, and that is to come to these, to come and take the bread and the cup, is to say, I believe in what Jesus has done to reconcile me to God. And so there's nothing punitive in saying to somebody, don't take these elements if you're not a Christian, but instead it's, it's a way of honoring everybody in the room, of saying this table means something very specific, and if, and if that is your faith, then this table is meant to encourage and to nourish you in your faith. If that's not your faith, uh, then, then it would be a charade for you to take these elements, and it would be a disservice to, for, for me to invite you to take these elements because I'd be asking you to publicly profess faith in something that you would say is not your faith. Um, and so I assume that every Sunday that there are people in all three of those buckets, uh, not a Christian and maybe not even really interested in becoming one, um, in a spiritual journey and not sure really where you are but very open, uh, and then Christian. And so I don't know where you are, but maybe that's a great question to kind of pose here at the beginning is, is for you to ask yourself, which of those three buckets would you fall into? And are you content with your, your bucket? <laughs> I wish I could go back and do the bucket thing all over again. <laughs> but here we are. Because, because this sermon in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul is preaching a sermon to philosophers and to people who are decidedly not Christians. Uh, in fact, he's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to a room full of people who are um, who have a very much a um, uh, sort of a, a buffet style of philosophy. That Athens was a place where people would come in from all over the world, and people would just kind of have this curiosity to hear everything that anybody has ever believed and want to ask questions about it and, and, and understand and, and even be entertained by the novelty of things that were, that were being professed. And so what, what the Apostle Paul does here is he brings three things. So I have a three-point sermon for you. And they all start with the same letter. So for some of you, that's your favorite thing, and I never do this today. Here are the three points. Um, today's sermon is about the context in which the gospel is preached, the content of the gospel itself, and the consequences of hearing the gospel. So we have context, content, consequences. Those are your three uh, headings. And basically what it's this, it, what, it's, what, it, what we're exploring is this, what constitutes telling somebody about Jesus Christ? Um, what do Jesus's witnesses need to know in order to tell somebody about Jesus Christ? And then what do those to whom we're proclaiming Christ need to know? Uh, and so I'll unpack that. But what's at stake is kind of the question here. So these are the questions we're going to look at, the context, the content, and the consequences of bearing witness to Christ. And so no matter which bucket you're in, come with me on this journey because I, it's, this is a text that is relevant to all three. Okay? Before we get into the content of the gospel that is of eternal consequence to every single person, we want to first look at the context, which is this, that when the gospel is delivered, when the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed, it is invariably delivered in a very specific way, and it's this, that it is always given to people who are made in the image of God. All people are made in the image of God. And so we are always talking to 
human beings who are made in the image of God, and because we're talking to people who are made in the image of God, regardless of what they believe, they have and are worthy of immense dignity and deserve to be treated with respect. There is no place in the gospel of Jesus Christ for an us-against-them posture when it comes to dealing with the dignity of people, okay? So I pray that Christ Pres Cool Springs would never become a church where we're checking credentials at the door and saying, are you one of us or are you one of them? And them could mean anything that we wanted it to mean. You're always, when you're presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ, one of the things that you fundamentally believe if you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ is that human beings bear the image of God, and because they do, because they were made that way, they deserve to be treated with immense dignity and respect. The Athenians that Paul addresses here, they subscribe, uh, by and large, this is a generalization, but they generally subscribe to one of two dominant philosophical schools of thought that were prevalent in Greek culture at the time. And those two schools of thought were Epicureanism and Stoicism. And in many ways, these two views resemble the two primary perspectives of our culture now. What are they? Well, Epicureans were people who believed that things happened by chance, that the world is kind of a random mix of things, and the aim of life then is pleasure. And so if it feels good, do it. If it doesn't feel good, avoid it. And they believed that there were gods, and they believed that these gods meddled in human affairs, but they didn't believe in an afterlife. And so these gods would be kind of superstitious gods, that you would offer a sacrifice to the god of rain, hoping that you would coerce them into sending rain on your crops so you could have your crop. Um, and so you, you, you were working with the gods but they didn't have the ability to give you afterlife. And so they believed that life on this earth was simple. It ran a course. When it was over, it was done. And so really the best way to live this life is just to get as much pleasure out of it as you possibly can. That's the Epicureans. Stoics were on the other side of a continuum there. They believed in destiny, that you cannot change what will happen. All you can really control is yourself. And so their solution to pain in life was, well, I'm going to stand tall. Whatever happens, I'm going to take life on the chin. And they really sought to be free from any worldly trappings. And Paul is in Athens, and he's looking around at this city that just has all of these idols and all of these statues and temples, and he's looking at all of it, and he's, and he's wanting to engage them on points that they had in common with each other. So what does this pagan city with all of its idols have in common with the Apostle Paul who believes that there is one God? So he looks for what he can affirm in their belief. And that is a skill that Christians should want to develop. We should want to develop it. We must be willing to look for elements of truths and truth in the lives of non-Christian people, which means we have to be humble enough to see truth outside of our own Christian circles, and we have to be willing to learn from what we see. So we can't say, because I'm a Christian, 
I get all of my information from one source, and if it comes from any other source, I'm going to regard it as suspect uh, or, or as coming from the enemy. We can't do that. Finding common ground with people who don't believe as we do is largely the work of asking honest questions about what people believe who believe differently than us without fearing what the answer might be. And that takes some courage and it takes some confidence that what we believe in is not so flimsy that it would fall apart if we ask questions about it. And Jerem Bar- Bars was one of my professors at Covenant Theological Seminary, uh, and he has a book, it's a wonderful book called The Heart of Evangelism, and he provides some examples of these kinds of questions, honest questions you would ask about somebody who doesn't believe what you believe, questions that include things like this. Does this person believe in God or in a sense of a need to worship? Do they have some respect for the Bible, and do they read it? Or do they believe spirituality is an important thing for a person? Do they sense a need to live in obedience to some law, to God's law? Do they see materialism as inadequate to satisfy the human heart? Is Christ, Jesus Christ, someone that they know about? Is he somebody that they admire? Do they believe in an afterlife? Do they believe in the possibility of judgment based on how we live? Have they given up on the church to satisfy them spiritually? These are good questions. These are good questions to wonder about. They're good questions to ask. Christianity, the gospel of Jesus Christ, hasn't collapsed in on itself when questions like this have been asked. These questions are pretty revealing and really They drive to the heart of what the gospel really is as opposed to kind of a moralistic version of religion that can be so empty and yet so much the the whole of what people have experienced their entire lives as people who have darkened the doors of churches. So in Paul's opening words, he affirms that the Athenians are clearly very religious people. They're very religious people because they have idols everywhere. And they have an obvious desire to know and to worship God. And this is not only evidenced by the volume of idols that they have, but the kinds of gods that they have named. So they have to believe that God must be greater than man, otherwise they wouldn't try to worship them. And they obviously believe that they were meant to interact with God regularly. And even based on having these temples and these kind of sacred places, that they were meant to interact with God reverentially. That there's a a reverence that we're supposed to have in the presence of God. And all of this Paul understood was, was in them because he believed, he knew, that God had put in everyone a hunger to know God. It's as Augustine said, my heart, uh, there's, there's a restlessness in me. I'm butchering the quote right now. Um, Lord, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. That God had put in everyone a hunger to know him, a hunger which can only be filled by him. And so even the basest attempt 
to worship is evidence of being made by God. That there would be something in us that would feel a need to want to connect with God somehow is evidence that we are made by God. God. And so Paul rightly affirms this, and he sees it as common ground. And what he also does is he affirms their hunger for knowledge. Verse 21 tells us that the Athenians loved to talk about ideas. And now we start to move into the content of the gospel, where Paul proclaims it. The Athenians loved to talk about ideas. The the term uh, came to be known as seed picking, Uh, meaning that they'd pick up philosophical ideas here and there. People would come to town from all over the world there in the harbor, and they they would pick up these philosophical ideas like like a chicken picks up seeds. That's not necessarily a complimentary term um, necessarily, but it's what they took Paul for, saying, what is this babbler? And the word babbler literally means, what does this seed picker really mean to say? Because Paul was saying something new to their ears. And so, as Athenians, they wanted more. Like, well, we want to hear this. You're saying something new. We haven't heard this. We want to hear more. Some wanted to hear it for entertainment. It's what they did, right? Anytime anything new came through town, they're like, tell us. For some, though, it was for the pursuit of truth. They really wanted to know what was true. And and then there was everything in between. But either way, Paul sought to bring them something that they did prize, and that was knowledge. Specifically, knowledge about the identity of one of their particular idols, and that was the idol, the statue to the unknown God. They had a God that they said, there's this God that we believe exists, but we don't know about him. But there are things that just support the idea that he has to be there. And so... The irony is that the altar's existence to the unknown God recognized such a God's presence, that there was a God they didn't know and that they wanted to know. It's inherently problematic to have a statue to an unknown God because the question for the Athenians with their unknown God is this. And it's also the question for anybody who believes, maybe there's a God, I think there's a God, there's probably a God, I don't know who this God is, I don't know anything about this God. Here's the problem with that knowledge. It's this, is that a God who minds being unknown? If you have an unknown God, the question you have to ask is, does he mind being unknown? Romans 1, 18 to 23, tells us that God made himself known. But people reject the knowledge of him. Yet we can't say that this is because God has made himself distant Because God is an engaging God. You cannot know him. You can't know God in a detached way. And on this this point, Paul moves to the actual content of the gospel message that he brings to them and that I bring to us. For many Christians, our temptation is to try to connect with non-Christian people by couching our testimony in really relative terms by leaving the substance of our spirituality ambiguous, as though there are no consequences either for belief or for ambivalence. But it's not enough to call yourself a spiritual person any more than it's enough to simply believe God exists. James 2.19 tells us even the demons believe that God exists. What we believe 
about God. That's the issue. What can we believe about God? That's the issue. And so as Paul begins to proclaim Christ, it's a process of bringing, and it's always this, it's a process of bringing specificity to the undefined. And that's what our witness always is. It's getting specific. That's what Christianity is, getting specific. It's where the relative becomes absolute, where the pluralistic becomes singular. And the knowledge of this one true specific God then demands a response from us. And we've talked about this in the series in Acts, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is an accept or reject kind of faith, that those are your only options, because it's either true or it's false. Those are the only two options. There is no world within Christian doctrine that says this can be true for some and not true for others. Within its own framework, that's impossible. And so what Paul does is he introduces Christ in a way that the Athenians have to do something with the information. And what Paul teaches demands one of only two responses, acceptance or rejection. And so he builds this case. And here's the content that he lays out. It's four points. Uh, God is the creator of everything. That's point one. He starts there. There is this unknown God. He's the creator of everything. He says, God made this world and all that is in it in verse 24. He's not in temples built by human hands. God has not left himself without a witness either. He has revealed himself as a garden testifies of a gardener. Creation testifies of a creator. God is the origin of our lives. He's the creator of everything. Point number two, God is the creator of everything. He's also the sustainer of everything. Next, Paul says, God gives all men life and breath and everything else in verse 25. We want to serve our objects of worship, enshrining them in fancy temples so that the world will appreciate their worth. But God doesn't need our service to call attention to his glory or to sustain his credibility. He sustains us. He sustains our life. He sustains our breath. So God is the creator of everything. God is also the sustainer of everything. Point number three, God is the ordainer of everything. It's not just that God made and sustains everything. He's actively involved in his creation. Paul says that God determines our lives down to where and when we live. I mean, for us in this room, it means that we don't live where we do in this generation by accident or by chance. We are here by God's decree. He put us here for now. And then he gets into point four, and that is this. God is the creator of everything. He's the sustainer of everything. He's the ordainer of everything. And then God engages us so that we might seek him, that God calls us into a relationship with him. Paul then explains it this way. He says, God did this so that men would seek him and find him. If God engages his creation, what are we, 
if we fail to engage him. Annie Dillard, one of my favorite authors in her book, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, she wrote it when she was in her early 20s and won the Pulitzer. It was her first book. I don't know. <laughs> but she says this. She says, uh, she describes this particular breed of caterpillar that marches in line after a leader. And I think it's a good description of, of if there's a God who seeks us and engages with us and we don't engage with him back, it's a good picture. She says, there was a scientist who placed the caterpillars on the rim of a bucket and they all followed in a train and then the scientists removed the leader and they marched on following, one, uh, following the one in front of them assuming somebody was the leader. And so ingrained was their will to follow that they marched on to exhaustion in an endless circle with no leader. If God is who Paul says he is, how lost are we to ignore him? We're like, we're like caterpillars without our leader, and we're marching through this life in vain. Maybe this is you. You have a conviction that this life should have purpose. But for the life of you, you don't know what that purpose is. That's what Paul is offering the Athenians. So what are the consequences? Really, he gets into talking about judgment. I just listened to a clip online. I, I didn't think to put it in the sermon. of An old black and white clip of Billy Graham presenting the gospel probably in the 60s. And it was such a crystal clear presentation of the gospel. But one of the things that struck me about it was in the 60s, you could give a gospel presentation that was focused on judgment, and people would sit up in their seats and they would say, I need to listen to this because I don't want to face God's judgment. And I feel like now we live in an age that might even scoff at the idea that even such a thing as judgment exists. And yet, I ask you, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that, that these lives that we're living, that there's no standard of righteousness that exists, that there's no account to which we will be asked to, that we will be held to? Do you really believe that, that there's just nothing? What Paul talks about is, is, is judgment. See, what the Greek, and he talks about resurrection. The Greek philosophers would say this. They would say, when the dust has soaked up man's blood once he's dead, there is no resurrection. And if there is no life after death, then we're left to just march on in our circle, assuming that, there, that all there is to life is your four score and ten. But the big question is, is that true? And do you really believe that? The question we have to ask is this. Can we honestly think that we can play around with ultimate issues like the existence and the nature of God without at some point having to embrace a belief personally? Can you go through your life saying, ah, maybe there's a God, maybe there's a not, and get all the way to the end of your life putting off having to actually believe something with conviction? Can you get there? The good news of the gospel is you can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved at any moment, and he will keep you. But 
we see it. It's all around. Kind of taking the I'm going to remain neutral on the question of God. You can't. You can't without making a very theological assertion about the nature of that God you're remaining neutral on, right? So if you think that you've just, descri- you've just decided to remain neutral on the question of God and you're standing before him, you are making a doctrinal assertion that he, this God, of whom you are going to remain neutral on, you're believing that he himself is ambivalent about whether you acknowledge him or not. You're counting on that. And isn't that at its core? Isn't believing that the God who may or may not exist is ambivalent about your commitment to him, isn't that at its core a religious belief? If it is, isn't that religious belief one you'd better be right about? Especially if Jesus claims that he is the only way to God, which he does. What's at stake here? Paul comes to his point, and he says, you can't remain neutral about the gospel of Jesus Christ. R.C. Sproul observed this. He's a pastor and theologian who passed away a number of years ago, very influential in shaping my faith as a, as a young Christian. He said this, when Christians are discussing the existence of God, we are, abs- we are asserting the objective existence of a God who exists apart from us as believing subjects. If he does exist objectively, no amount of disbelief has the power to annihilate him. And if he does not exist objectively, then all our faith and feeling does not have the power to conjure him up. For Christian people, we don't believe that we believe in one option of a faith. We believe that Jesus is the one and only Son of God, and that's either true or it's not. And if it's not, then Christians are wrong. In other words, the God Christianity proclaims either exists or he doesn't, and if he does, he is the only true God who will judge the hearts of every single person he has made, which is all of us. And so the gospel is this accept or reject proposition that we will be judged, all of us will be judged, according to how we respond to Christ. There are consequences either way, and God will judge us all. So it's not that Christians believe God will judge non-Christians only. It's that God will judge all people. So what are the consequences? Well, to believe the gospel is to believe that when he judges me, he judges me on the record of Jesus' righteousness and not mine. To reject the gospel is to deny that there is a God who created, sustains, and ordains the course of our lives so we as people who have violated even his most basic commands might know him. But to accept the gospel, Paul teaches, is to to repent of our willful rejection of him and of our, for lack of a better way to say it, insulting attempt to reduce the creator of all down to crude images of gold, silver, stone, or philosophical ideas that he has made. It is to believe on Christ alone And that to believe in Christ alone is to be put right with God. 
Judgment comes not only for unbelievers. If, if, Paul, if what Paul is saying is true, God will judge all according to whether we have accepted or rejected Christ. And this should sober us all where we sit. Because it's asking the question, and it's the question that I would want to leave us with, all of us, is who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? But it should also remind you that these are days, the ones we're living in right now, are days where the truth of the gospel still stands. And what that means is God has provided redemption for our sin and for our ignorance of him, if we would put our faith in him. And so he calls us all even now to connect all of our lives, our whole lives, to the ultimate truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, one that engages every part of us, one that engages where we find our peace and where we find our joy and where we find our identity and where we find our security and where we find our perspective and where we find our worth. Who is Jesus to you? What will you do with the gospel? Because you must do something. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for passages of Scripture like this that show us not only how to present the gospel, how to speak about Christianity to people who don't perhaps share a faith, but remind us that as we do as Christian people when we talk about this faith, that we're talking about a redemption story, an intervention where you have stepped into time and space, taking on flesh, living in our place, dying in our place, defeating the power of death in our place, robing us in your righteousness, giving us your life when there was nothing we could do to earn it. And so, Father, we thank you for that. Lord, as a, as a pastor, as a, as a person who is preaching a sermon right now, concluding a sermon right now, I don't know what you're doing in the lives of people within the sound of my voice. I never know that. And yet, you've given us your word that we might know you. And so, Father, I pray that you would work through your word, that you would use the things that we have spoken today to get into our hearts, that you would take anything that has come out of my mouth that is, that is misrepresenting the truth of the gospel, that that would find no purchase in our hearts, that those words would fall to the ground, and that, Lord, you would have your way. Thank you for your kindness, for your redemption. Thank you that you have made us to be people who have a sense that you are there whether we know who you are or not. And thank you that you have not remained silent or hidden yourself from us so that we might know you well. Complete the good works that you've begun in us. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.